0: Okay, I don't know if you um, saw, but uh, this, um, this last week, Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Meta, uh, Facebook's parent company, announced she is leaving the company, and in her resignation announcement, which was on Facebook, of course, uh, she wrote, It is time for me to write the next chapter of my life. That is an appealing, intoxicating idea, isn't it? That you get to be the author of your destiny you get to be the author of of your life okay but what happens when your life does not run according to the script that you have written for it okay well we're looking at that passage that samuel read to us earlier but to understand it you've got to remember what went before okay jesus has asked his disciples who do you say that i am to which peter replies you're the christ You are the Messiah. But of course, Peter has got a whole load of assumptions about what being the Messiah looks like, doesn't he? That Jesus is the one who is going to lead them to victory against their political, against their uh, military, flesh and blood enemies. Peter has written the next chapter of Jesus's life for him. And because he's a follower of Jesus, he thinks he can write the next chapter of his life. But immediately, Jesus turns that expectation of Peter on its head because instead, Jesus says, He is going to suffer and die. And none of that features in Peter's script, does it? Either for Jesus or for himself. And so, Peter rebukes Jesus, which leads to Jesus rebuking Peter. Okay, but where does that leave Peter? Where does that leave him and the other disciples? Because suffering and death and denying yourself and taking up your cross, which is what Jesus has said, they've got to do what we've got to do, that isn't exactly what they have signed up for, is it? That does not exactly sound like power and triumph and living your best life now, does it? And their understanding and expectation of what it meant to be the Messiah and of God's plans and purposes for their own lives as followers of the Messiah, those expectations are being shaken. Okay, but think about it because that is not such an alien experience, is it? I mean, maybe for you, life is not going the way that you planned out. That relationship that you thought was the one is broken or the job that you wanted you didn't get or you did but it hasn't worked out. Life has thrown up stuff that frankly you don't like and you wish wasn't happening. And like Peter and the other disciples, life can begin to look like something that you didn't sign up for. Or maybe, you know, as we were hearing from uh, Raymond, you know, you, you be- maybe you've, you've become a Christian or you are coming back to Christianity, or you have been a Christian for a while, but you are being confronted with a decision that is costly. And you know that obedience to Jesus is going to cost you. Or maybe worse than those two things, disappointment or cost, it's not just that you face disappointment or a cost. There are also those times when As we're going to see here, when you have to watch something or someone that you love disintegrate. Okay, what do you do when life is like that? What do you do when life is not going to script? When you are facing disappointment or cost or chaos? What can give you hope in disappointment? What can make the cost seem worthwhile? What can bring order out of chaos? First point then, future hope. Future hope. Now, have you ever had that experience of watching someone else's mask slip? Their mask slip just for a moment. And you see, maybe that's what they're really like. Maybe it's a flash of anger. Maybe it's a racist comment. And it is gone in a moment. But in that moment, you get a glimpse of what they are really like. And that, that's a recurring theme in literature, isn't it? I mean, take C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, one of my favourite uh, kids' stories, not just for kids. The lady of the green kirtle has imprisoned Puddleglum and the children, and on the surface, she appears in an attentive and generous host as she seeks to persuade them that Aslan and Narnia and even the sun, they don't really exist. And they are in danger of falling for her enchantments. But in a moment of bravery, Puddleglum breaks a spell. And in that moment, it is not just the lady's sweet attitude that changes, she changes physically, into a great, coiling, crushing snake, as she's revealed for who she really is under the exterior. Well, think of think positively. Think of Gandalf the Grey in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, who returns as Gandalf the White as he comes to rescue the besieged forces at Helm's Deep. And it's his change in appearance that tells you something of who he is. But of course, if you know a bit about Tolkien, you know that Tolkien based Gandalf's transformation on Christ's transfiguration here in Mark. Okay, so if, that's, if Tolkien borrowed Gandalf's transformation from here, who does Mark borrow Christ's transformation from? Who's he basing this off? What story is there in ancient literature that Mark borrowed from for his account? And the answer is there isn't one. There's nothing in the ancient literature that compares to this. There is no equivalent of what happens here to Jesus. This is unique. And Mark tells us it happened, verse 2, on a high mountain. And that should immediately alert you to something of what is going on here, shouldn't it? Because in the Old Testament, two men who just happened to be Moses and Elijah, they encounter God on a high mountain in all his glory. And Mark tells us, verses two and three, but on this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them, transfigured before the three disciples. And his clothes, he said, Became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now as we said before, Mark's gospel is almost certainly based on Peter's memoirs. I don't know about you. I can imagine Peter recounting this. saying like, "Man, I have never seen anything like it. His clothes. I've never seen anything that white. They are whiter than anything you could ever imagine. because when Mark says his clothes were radiant, he uses a word for shining, for glittering, for gleaming. It's almost as if light is coming out of Jesus to towards them. And it is as if Peter is struggling to find words to describe what it is he is experiencing because, What do you compare something to that has no comparison? As as Peter writes for himself in his second letter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But that's not all they saw, is it? Verse four, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Two men who encountered God on a mountain in all his glory. Moses, who after Israel's rebellion and near disintegration, encountered God on a mountain. And Elijah, who after his victory over the prophets of Baal, sinks into this pit of despair. And then what happens? He encounters God on a mountain. Both men who know all about suffering, both men who know what it is like for your life, or those whom you love, for their lives, not to go according to script. Here, John Chrysostom, the great fourth century preacher, he gave another reason why these two appear. Both, he said, had withstood a tyrant. Both had delivered their people, Moses against Pharaoh, Elijah against Jezebel, just as Christ will face down the tyranny of Satan, and once again, ultimately deliver his people and so both of these men Moses and Elijah they ultimately they had been pointing forward to the man they are talking to hadn't they and in Jewish thought both of them were expected to arrive on the scene before the last and great final day of the Lord Elijah was supposed to appear and a prophet like Moses might appear to usher in that great and final day of God And here they are, both of them, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus, which in part explains why Peter says what he says. Verse five, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah because there was also an expectation that before the end finally came, there would be one last great feast of tabernacles to celebrate Israel living in tents with God in their midst before they enter the final, ultimate promised land. And Moses is here, and Elijah is here, and the Messiah is here, which means it must be time to put up those tents but before peter can start building he's cut off isn't he verse seven and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him clouds have meaning don't they in the old testament biblically you know when a cloud came down on mount sinai at the giving of the law or the cloud that led the people through the wilderness the cloud was a symbol of god's divine presence and jesus has asked his disciples who do you say that i am and peter replied you're you are the messiah here we get god the father's response to that question this is my son and with that Moses and Elijah are gone, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Hey, Moses and Elijah are great, aren't they? They're heroes of the faith. But ultimately, they're only servants. And there is only one son. And he's the one who's left standing. Okay, but why all of this now? Why, why now, at in, in, in this point in Mark's gospel, in this point in the life of the disciples, why the glory and why the words listen to him? Because Jesus has just told them that he must suffer and they must suffer, that he's going to die and they have got to deny themselves because they are going to watch him be crucified and he tells them that they have to be willing to take up their cross and follow him. Why would you listen to that? Why would you follow him if that's what Christian discipleship means? Why trust him? Why trust him when things aren't going according to the script you have written? Why trust him when there is a cost involved? Why stay loyal to him when things aren't happening the way you thought you had signed up for? Answer, because this is who he is. This is who he is. This is whose hands you are in. And to be in the hands of one so glorious would be terrible if he wasn't so good. And when Jesus is transformed before them, It's not his nature that changes, is it? It's his external appearance that changes to fit his true nature. And for a moment, they and you and I, we get to see the curtain drawn back for just a moment and see something of his eternal glory. The Psalm 104 says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. So when later these men get to watch Jesus' body, they probably didn't watch him being scourged, they would have seen the end result of it. When they see his body flayed and ripped apart by the scourge, when they see this man being hung on a cross, they know this is whose body it is. This is the beloved, glorious Son of God. Guys, it is knowing that, that this is who he was for all eternity past, that this is who he is now, that this is who he ever will be, That after suffering, this is what lies on the other side, the hope of glory, the promise of what will be. It is that that can give you courage in your suffering. As Augustine wrote, As the sun is to our eyes, so Christ is to our hearts. Hey, I mean, beautiful day yesterday, wasn't it? And you look up and you feel the warmth of the sun on your face. And Augustine is saying, hey, so look up to Christ. See him in his glory and let him warm your heart. This is who holds you in his hands. But let's be honest, okay, that doesn't make the present any less real, does it? Glory might lie up ahead, but it doesn't change the reality of now. Second point, then, present reality. Okay, how easy do you find it to keep a secret? I mean, let's say you're, you know, I mean, imagine you're planning a surprise birthday party for someone. I had to do this for um, Sue for her 50th. And um, you just want to talk to somebody about it, don't you? You just want to tell them about it, all the stuff that you are planning. And it is so much easier when finally you can talk about it. Well, on their way down from the mountain, Mark says, verse nine, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. Why not until then? Why not start talking about it already? Because they and everyone else will only properly understand what they have just witnessed after his death and his resurrection talking about it beforehand it's only going to feed their ideas of triumphalism and victory against physical enemies and what jesus is making clear is that in the purposes of god suffering precedes glory but the disciples doubt that don't they verse 11 They asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? I mean, Jesus, the scribes, they're always talking about the prophet Malachi. Malachi 4, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Jesus, that does not sound much like suffering to me. In fact, that sounds a whole lot like God breaking in and making everything right. Subtext, Jesus, God has got better plans for you and for us than suffering. And Jesus replies, verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man? that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. How is it written? In other words, guys, the Bible has got more to say about what's to come before the end than just Elijah. Like Isaiah 53, and the servant of the Lord who will be despised and rejected, smitten and afflicted, pierced and crushed. Or Zechariah 12, and the one who is pierced, who they're gonna look upon, whose death is going to be mourned as that of a beloved only child. Is God gonna break in and make everything right? Is there glory up ahead? Sure there is, but suffering comes first. Suffering precedes glory. And if you notice, not just for the Messiah, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased because Herod and his lover Herodias did to John the Baptist who was standing in Elijah's shoes what Jezebel had failed to do to Elijah and that's to kill John. And yet if you think about it, the disciples, they don't need to look back to John, do they? To know the reality of suffering. They just had to come down the mountain. They just had to come down the mountain and walk back down to the valley. Because on the mountain, there was radiant light. Down in the valley, there is darkness. On the mountain, God's Son stands in his glory Down in the valley, another sun writhes on the ground. On the mountain, Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus. Down in the valley, scribes argue with his disciples. On the mountain, Jesus is revealed in the power of his true nature. Down in the valley, the disciples are revealed in the weakness of their true nature. On the mountain, God the Father speaks words of love and declaration over his beloved son. Down in the valley, another father speaks over his beloved son. Words of fear and words of desperation. But guys, that's the point of mountaintop experiences, isn't it? Whether Moses on Sinai or Elijah on Horeb, or Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is to prepare you for the reality and the battle of the valley below. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. It's not hard to guess what they were arguing about, is it? Okay, probably their, the disciples' allegiance to Jesus and their failure to cast out this demon. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you face criticism because of your faith. Maybe you face criticism because of your personal failures. Or here, maybe like here, maybe you face criticism both for your faith and for your personal failures. That can have a demoralizing effect on you, can't it? That is the present reality of the valley. But what the disciples are experiencing is nothing in comparison to what the father and his son are experiencing. Jesus asks, verse 16, what are you arguing about? And before anyone else can answer, verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit. In verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. The life of another beloved son is being destroyed and everyone seems powerless to do anything about it. Again, maybe you know something of what that feels like. Maybe someone you love or some relationship that you care about is disintegrating and nothing that you or anyone else does seems to make any difference. Or maybe like this father, you have asked for help and you have been let down. Guys, that too is the reality of the valley. But look what happens next. Verse 20, they brought the boy to Jesus and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Just get that. Jesus comes on the scene. The problem is laid right in front of him. God is about to do something extraordinary. And what happens? All hell breaks loose. Everything looks as though it is getting worse. God is right there and it all goes belly up. That too is the reality of the valley where suffering precedes glory. None of us want to stay in the valley, do we? We don't want to stay in the darkness. So how can we bring future hope to bear in the valley? How can we bring future hope to bear in the present reality of suffering? Last point then, the bridge between two worlds. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody having an epileptic seizure, but with this boy convulsing in front of him, Jesus takes the time to ask the father, verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? Why does he do that? Because he, he, he probably knows the answer, or he could know it. He could just deliver the boy immediately. Why ask the dad? Because he's treating him as a person. He is giving him permission to tell his story as he recounts the countless times his son has been thrown into fire and water. And there's the untold story behind it of how many times, as Matt said, how many times he and his wife have had to rescue him and pull him out. And the father's desperate. He's desperate for his son to be healed, and he is desperately trying to hold on to faith verse 22 but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us if you can do anything now it's not surprising he's doubting is it having just watched Jesus's disciples fail to do anything verse 23 and Jesus said to him if you can All things are possible for one who believes. You see, it is not that Jesus might possibly be able to do something if he really tries hard enough, that he might be able to offer a little bit of help. It's that he can do everything. He knows all things are possible. He knows glory is coming. He has no doubt about God's power. But does the father, does the father? And with his boy writhing at his feet, Jesus is challenging this man to trust him. I know that you have lived with this for years. I know the times when you have rescued him and held him. I know the pain and the grief that you experience every single day. But trust me, trust me that I'm the one who can do all things. And verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's beautifully honest, isn't he? He is so beautifully honest. What does Jesus say to him? Does Jesus tell him? I'm sorry, mate, that's not good enough. Okay, come back when you really believe. You need more faith. Come and see me again when that's the case. That's not what he says, is it? Verse 25? he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the boy is convulsed, looks as if he's dead, before Jesus takes him by the hand, lifts him up and gives him back to his father, whole and healed. Guys, that is whose hands you are in those are whose hands you're in when you are facing criticism for your faith or for your personal failures that is whose hands you are in when the lord calls you to walk a hard path that is whose hands you are in when what or whom you love is disintegrating but get this it is not the size of the man's faith that jesus is interested in It is the object of his faith. It is who he is putting his faith in. And his faith may be small, it may be mustard seed, and it may be faltering, and he may be clinging on by his fingertips, but he looks to Jesus and he trusts him. Help my unbelief. He knows he can't help himself, but Jesus can. And guys, that is the bridge between the suffering of now and the glory to come. That is what can give you peace and poise in the valley and the strength to hold on. You see, afterwards, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, verse 28, why could we not cast it out? You know, Jesus had given them authority to do exactly this, hadn't he? And they had done stuff exactly like this in the past. So why not now? Why could we not do it? Failure is a humbling but powerful learning experience, isn't it? And Jesus tells in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, Jesus could say to the demon, I command you, because his authority lies in himself. But the authority of the disciples is a delegated authority, and most likely they've become self-confident. Their previous success has left them thinking, we can do this, but they can't. Not in themselves, not on their own. And prayer is that understanding verbalised. Prayer is faith verbalised. God, I can't do this, but you can. I believe, but help my unbelief. And down here in the valley, we're in the valley, we're in the darkness. So we look up to Christ and trust him. That whatever we are going through we are in his glorious and good hands, his nail pierced hands. As the writer to the Hebrew says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And here, the one who shines like the sun, he will suffer, won't he? Like this boy, he too will be thrown to the ground, to be nailed to a cross. But who will he, who will he do it for? He'll do it for you, for all the times we haven't believed. And as he suffers, the sun will be blotted out. And he will enter the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death so that you and I can be brought out the other side into the sunshine of his glory. That's why you can trust him. And as you do, as you fix your eyes on him, it'll begin to change you. As Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, as you look on him, you become more like him, like he is to this father. You will become more compassionate and merciful to the suffering because you know that he is compassionate and merciful to you. You'll find yourself increasingly stable in the midst of suffering because you know that he suffered for you, which means that he loves you and has a purpose for what you are going through. And you will be willing to take your stand against darkness when you have to confront it because you know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and whatever hell breaks loose... You know glory lies up ahead. That's whose hands we are in. Let's pray.